1: Joining me today is Matt Salo, Executive Director of the National Association of Medicaid Directors to discuss Medicaid policy reforms expected under the Biden administration's efforts to pass its second infrastructure, or the so-called care economy bill. Matt, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks, David. It's great to be back.
1: Matt Salo's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly, on background, last night, Senate Democrats passed a $3.5 trillion budget resolution that would allow Senate D's to fund significant healthcare reforms, along with education, immigration, climate crisis, and other termed care economy policies. Among other healthcare policies, the D's would fund are long-term care by increasing Medicaid, home, and community-based waivers, address the ACA Medicaid coverage gap, address health equity, affordable housing, and expand Medicare benefits to cover hearing, oral, and vision. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, has promised to have bill details ironed out by mid-September, although most people think that's optimistic, or soon thereafter, the Senate returns from a five-week summer recess. Again, with me to discuss what Medicaid policy reforms may or should appear in the package is the National Association of Medicaid Directors, E.D. Matt Salo. Dedicated listeners to this podcast may recall I interviewed Matt in March 2017. So, Matt, with that as a brief background, I'm sure you've looked at the uh, Senate budget resolution documents, uh, the agreement framework, although it simply amounts to bulleted policy reforms. I'm sure you you reviewed, rather, which of these catch your organization's interest?
0: Yeah, so this is a really interesting and exciting time, David. And, um, you know, as you pointed out, there's a lot still in flux. There are details still being hammered out. And as with anything uh legislative these days, nothing's done until it is actually done. Right. But um the, the biggest piece that I think is uh well at least the piece worth talking about on uh at the top of the hour, uh is the the significant investment in long term services and supports, uh primarily around home and community based services uh that the, that the package is, is hoping to accomplish. And I think there there's three main lines of, of thinking that I'd like to share with, with you and your listeners on this that um, that, that I think are important. Uh, nice. One of which is, I, I think it's really, really important to appreciate what this is trying to do in terms of, of recognize uh, a really important fact around the long-term care system in this country. That very, very few people actually understand or appreciate. And that's the fact that Medicaid, you know, the program that currently serves 85 million low income Americans, uh, 40% of kids in the country, 50% of the births in this country, Medicaid, not Medicare is the nation's long term care system. And we have been doing it for decades and one of the things so again what the what the infrastructure package is doing is saying look it's, it's time to turbocharge that and put you know upwards of 400 billion dollars um, into Medicaid coverage increased Medicaid coverage of uh, home and community- based services and the way we think about it there's kind of two different flavors of long-term care there's the institutional you know, a nursing home or other type of facility and then there are alternatives to that which in almost every instance is cheaper and generally preferable to to the consumer um and this is kind of going all in on saying we got to put a lot more resources and work and, and oomph behind the effort to increase those home and community-based alternatives so I think it's really important to sort of to wave this flag and say, yeah, Medicaid is doing this. You know, it's it's done a lot without a whole lot of support, without a whole lot of recognition um, and could definitely use, you know, an influx of of federal support to help continue that mission. And, And quite frankly, Medicaid programs have been on the forefront of driving the, you know, Deinstitutionalization, or the the HCBS uh, alternatives to to institutional care, for more than four decades. So again, really important, you know, for policymakers and the general public and voters and the average citizen to understand that, you know, when your grandma, when your father, when your um when, when you um, ultimately need long-term care, whether that, again, that's in an institution, a nursing home, or elsewhere, it's generally not going to be Medicare that's doing that for you. It's Medicaid. So I think that's really important.
1: No, I appreciate, I I absolutely appreciate your emphasizing this. Uh, Listeners may know I interviewed Judy Fader on long-term care policy not too long ago. Uh, Sadly, were uh, atypical compared to other like countries, in fact, in, in that we only have a catastrophic long-term care policy, meaning you have to spend yourself down into poverty before you qualify for the Medicaid long-term care benefit. And, of course, we have this age wave about which you're well aware. So this is a serious uh, problem. Uh, maybe as a follow-up quickly, you, you're probably familiar with the Casey and Dingle bill. Uh, uh, Swazi from New York has a bill. Uh, recently out, these are bills that get at both, um, developing a long-term care policy in, in, say, or complementary to the Medicaid program, but also, um, on the Casey Dingle, uh, Palone and others, uh, building, uh, long-term care infrastructure, meaning, uh, workforce, paying them, uh, reasonably, allowing them to, uh, do apprenticeships, unionize, et cetera. So there's a lot more than just throwing money at long-term care. I'm sure you would agree.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I, I have been working with Judy Fader for, for decades on a variety of issues, and we're absolutely aligned on that issue. And I think that's, so that's the second piece of, you know, beyond once we get to this appreciation that it's actually Medicaid that's doing all of the hard work in long-term care. And David, you you hit on this when you sort of said, look, it's, you know, and I, I, I tend to use my finger air quotes when I say long-term care system because uh, it's not a very thoughtful right, or right. even even humane system. It, it is a last-dollar coverage system. And because the nation's long-term care uh, benefit runs through Medicaid, Medicaid is a means-tested, low-income program. That really means that when you when you can rely on Medicaid, or when you do rely on Medicaid, you are at that point, or you have at that point, impoverished yourself, uh, and or it is it has forced you to kind of go through machinations to, you know, get elder law attorneys and estate planners to hide your assets mm-hmm. so that you can impoverish yourself on paper. Either way, that is not a humane. Policy that is, I, I think it's a appalling. You know, when you step back and think about this is our policy, and so I think the, the pushback, you know, to compared to the appreciation of this is, yes, Medicaid could certainly spend four hundred billion dollars in improving what we do, but don't the people in this country deserve a, a more of a first dollar coverage? a more of a, you know, as you said, less of a catastrophic and more of a front-end benefit. And, you know, I think our folks, the state Medicaid directors, we're pretty agnostic on what that looks like. Is that, you know, is it creating a Medicare Part E? Or maybe. You know, is it creating some kind of, um, you know, cafeteria plan, long-term care insurance that's, that's meaningful? Uh, maybe. Um, or is, is it something else? I, it can be a lot of things, but I think what we what we owe it to ourselves as, as a country is to say we should be thinking about how do we provide people with the services that they clearly need without impoverishing themselves first. And so that's that's going to be a trickier one to kinda figure out how to how to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They uh, they and their families. I will say, not surprisingly, to make certain there are waitlists uh, to be a recipient of a home and community-based service benefit. Uh, in some states, these are tens of thousands of people uh, on these waitlists, particularly Texas, I know, Ohio, amongst others. And I will say, too, one last point. Uh, because uh, the long-term care benefit is structured as as a Medicaid benefit, really it constitutes segregated care, and that point's been made, particularly in context of the Biden administration's interest in health equity, uh, racial equality. Um, and we, we do know from uh, the Supreme Court, uh, uh, separate is not equal. Uh, and I'm yeah. sure everyone knows that court case. Let's move on. So uh, you yeah, actually, do – Please, yeah, baby, go ahead.
0: I, I would like to add another another point on that please. because I think you, you brought up the, you know, the DEI or the inequities and disparities angle on this. And I think that's a really important one. I, I would just throw out one one aspect of this um, of this policy discussion that I, that I think gets glossed over and is really important. So, part and parcel of you know Medicaid's history of being you know obviously a low income means tested program, but also providing all of the long term care, mm-hmm. is that there are provisions in place, um, you know, kind of things called estate recovery where an individual or or a couple who, you know, utilize a lot of long-term care services in Medicaid, at no point does anyone, you know, take the house away from them while they're alive, um, or even while their surviving spouse is alive. But if state recovery does say, look, if Medicaid has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in long-term care for you, then there's an obligation, state and federal, to go and say, hey, can we recoup some of those costs from your estate? And you know, if it's you know, if it's some you know wealthy family in the suburbs of out in Connecticut somewhere with a multi-million dollar estate and they're on Medicaid, it's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Right. But one of the things that really hits that I don't think people appreciate is that, you know, because of the systemic racism that we've seen in things like housing policy in this country of redlining where African Americans and African and communities of color have been systematically denied access to equity in the form of housing for so long that we kind of get to this point where we see families where the, this is the first home that they have owned, you know, in generations. And then the government, Medicaid is coming in to recoup that home via estate recovery. Now, it's that's not done as a, you know, as with an intentionality of a disparity, but clearly it is a very, very bad outcome. And so, again, really want to stress the need to think about humane, thoughtful, purposeful long-term care policies that don't set us get us one step forward and two steps back um, on, on some of those issues.
1: Excellent point. Uh, we could go on much further about how this connects the dots to critical race theory, et cetera. But let's, let's move on. Um, so your organization has a list of, uh, 2021 policy priorities. Uh, these number, uh, 30 in total in 11 categories. I actually counted. Which of, which of these? So there's so too many to mention. A lot of them, I will say, are technical. Uh, but which of these do you believe dovetail with or maybe included In resolution uh, legislation, I'll just name one, particularly uh, since we've referenced social determinants, and I love the way you have this phrase: facilitate, facilitate rather braided funding approaches. And and I'm sure you know this gets at this issue that Medicaid is limited by statute on how it can directly support or play in the SDOH pool.
0: Yeah, so I think um, where I think we will probably align quite well uh, with the current administration is. And I think one good thing to say is the conversation on uh, social, we're actually starting to call them social drivers of health. We're keeping that same acronym, but social drivers. And I think people sort of look at determinants as, well, too deterministic and too, you know, get away from that. But we've we've moved beyond the argument of, is this important and should we be focusing on it? That argument is set. We should. We need to be focusing on housing, on safe and stable um food and nutrition um on helping prevent adverse childhood events and, and trauma there's no question we need to do that the question then becomes who pays for it how much of it do you do and where do you start to draw the lines um when it comes to you know, setting public policy especially for medicaid which is a program again that serves or will serve by the end of the year 85 million americans so there, there are any number of, like, really salient examples. So, you know, you've got, you know, a guy who is uh, experiencing homelessness. He has a co-occurring substance abuse and um, mental health disorder. He is in and out of the ER 100 days a year. It is no question. It is the easiest calculus in the world to do if you give this guy some supportive, stable housing you are going to massively improve his health outcomes and you are going to massively decrease his healthcare costs. That's a no (laughs) brain, but that that's, that's a bit of an outlaw. You know, again, you have 85 million other people in the program, all of whom have the same basic needs, you know, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs of housing and food and, 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 and et cetera. Um, but, it is much less obvious as you move along the spectrum to say, "Oh, well, we can't provide housing, or Medicaid can't provide housing and food, and all of these other things to 85 million Americans." It's how are we going to leverage other sources? Um, you know, whether those are federal sources. You know, making sure that people who are eligible for things like SNAP and WIC are enrolled and get those. Um, or whether it's, you know, more kind of diffuse types of uh, resources like, you know, food kitchens and other types of things, um, that are more driven at the local. Uh, and we got to figure out how do we, as, as you said, kind of braid and blend the funding streams. Um, so that, you know, maybe Medicaid is the one, because ultimately we are going to be responsible for the, the healthcare provision and the healthcare costs. Of these individuals downstream but if we can bring other payers other players to the table in something i like to call kind of a stone soup approach you know we'll provide the stone and then you know HUD can provide the cabbage and you know snap can provide the carrots and you, you get enough of these other players throwing their piece their obligation into this big soup you've got something who, that you can nutritionally feed a lot of people and do it in a sustainable way.
1: Great. Thank you. I'll, I'll just reference this because I just posted uh, this essay uh, on the website. Uh, the New England Journal had a prospective essay on July 22nd, and this is exactly what you're talking about, Matt, and that is the, the term now increasingly is uh, uh, medical-financial partnerships. So, mm-hmm. where the example given in the Nijim piece was, um, helping Medicaid beneficiaries or sure Medi- more Medicare, ben- Medicaid rather beneficiaries apply for an earned, their earned c- income tax credit. The statistic is in 2020, $10 billion of potential EITC, uh, refunds were unclaimed. So, basically, you're right, braiding together what were so, uh, separate silos uh say for example on the financial uh side tax preparers to make sure again people claim credits due to them with uh medical provisioning or the, having them partner let me let me go to um and this is a big issue all these are big issues uh, sorry um but a few years ago uh, your organization published an issue brief regarding Medicaid value based purchasing or the intersection between uh, CMS's Quality Payment Program, and Medicaid. Uh, what's your sense regarding the administration or CMS particularly better aligning Medicaid uh, with Medicare value-based uh, purchasing? This is the idea that Medicaid would increasingly pay uh, providers as in the direction that the Medicare program is, whereby providers don't get just a straight fee-for-service reimbursement, part of the reimbursement. Uh, is is based on a quality multiplier, for lack of a better phrase.
0: Yeah, so I, I think a couple things. I mean, one is that you know we've got terrific dance partners at the federal level right now for some of these conversations around aligning Medicaid, Medicare, and and you know ideally other payers as well. You know, Dan Tsai, the the new CSCS, yes. uh, the new the federal Medicaid director. Um, you know, he was the Massachusetts Medicaid director, so he gets these things on a just fundamental level. And then Liz Fowler, the, who's the new head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Mm-hmm. Extraordinarily thoughtful people who really get, um, the nexus of these issues. And, you know, the, I think the thing that, that really strikes me as being important is, you know, look, I've been doing state Medicaid work for 25 years and i Firmly believe with every you know inch of my of my soul that you know the work that's happening, the innovation that's happening in state Medicaid programs across the country is second to none in terms of thoughtfulness, in terms of creativity, and in terms of trying to keep a focus on just grabbing a dysfunctional healthcare system by the lapels and shaking it until it breaks itself out. But I will acknowledge that. There is a limit to the to the extent to which Medicaid and when I say Medicaid, it's 56 individual state and territorial programs. Mm-hmm. There's a limit to which this this sparking of innovation that that can happen does happen in states. There's a limit to how much that can translate into changing the DNA of the healthcare system and. You know, for any of this, for any health reform to work, it has to be sustainable. And for it to be sustainable, it's got to become second nature to everyone involved. You know, it, if it's if it's always just a pilot, a demo, this complicated thing we're doing, there's no sustainability there. And so, quite frankly, you know, and I hopefully this is not you know heretical in my world, but you know. The innovations happening in Medicaid, I think, are the right answers. But we're going to have to figure out a way to translate those. And it'll probably have to be a lowest common denominator on some level, translate those into Medicare. Because once it happens in Medicare, it's going to happen in a uniform way across every state in this country. And that's the way that it really ingrains itself as second nature in the dna of providers when they start to learn this stuff in med school that's when we know it's really gonna work so to me it's this it's this marriage between you know harnessing the innovation and the excitement that's going on in medicaid translating that maybe you know kind of you know narrowing it dumbing it down if you will for broad translatability into medicare and then that's how you get this done because there's no question, there's no question that um every state Medicaid director and and you know I think everyone working um in, in health policy in general looks at what happens in a healthcare system where the financial incentives and the care delivery incentives are misaligned. Mm-hmm. If they're misaligned, we're never gonna make anything better. We have got to bring them together. We've got to stop paying for volume and start paying for value. And it's really, really trite and easy and simplistic to say that. It's extraordinarily hard to do it because again, it's not just Medicaid. It's not just Medicare. It's healthcare. And healthcare is just about 20% of the nation's GDP. And so when we're talking about changing the DNA of 20% of our GDP, that's not a trivial test. So that's, that, that's really important, and that's what we're doing. To
1: right, not an easy lift, as they would say, uh, at, at $4 trillion, and you're right on the GDP. I wasn't going to ask this question, but it's, it's sort of related, or it is related to maybe the flip side here. Um, and that is there have been some discussion. So most states, in fact, you would know better, maybe all states, uh, apply for an 1115 waiver, basically meaning they could customize their Medicaid benefit uh, program to meet best the particular or unique needs of their state Medicaid beneficiaries. Uh, but these waivers to be approved by the feds need to be budget neutral, meaning you can change delivery, provide different uh, services or products, um, but it has to be uh, comparatively budget neutral. Um, there is some discussion at the federal level about dropping the prerequisite of budget neutrality Of course, you know, it's how that would work. You know, the one suggestion is, well, you, you, you do that, but if there's additional projected costs, um, you know, who pay, who's on the hook for that? That gets debated, of course, immediately. But what's your take on, and this would be a a substantial reform of the Medicaid program. This one technical change on accepting or rejecting 1115 waivers. What's, what's your sense of that?
0: Um, so that's a great question. I, a, a couple of thoughts, one of which is, interestingly enough, I don't know how much of a radical change that might actually be. And I say that because, you know, budget neutrality, which is nowhere really in the statute, it's kind of a regulatory thing right. around for a long time. It, it really kind of comes out of a deep-seated distrust of states from the federal government. mm mm-hmm. Uh, in the sense that, well, you know, if you don't do this, if you don't put some parameters, states are just going to go and just spend federal dollars like drunken sailors. Um, which, okay, I get that. Um, but there's a lot of state dollars here too. And so I think, you know, the, the incentives to keep costs, you know, containable, uh, are really, really strong at the state level too. But I think one, one thing I would say is that, you know, again, a lot of the big, section 1115 waivers historically were kind of this compromise between states saying we want to expand coverage pretty significantly from what we were doing. um, But keep it budget neutral by saying, yes, but we're going to quote unquote reform the health care. We're going to go to manage care or some other type of uh, function that will, you'll cover more people. But you'll spend less per person, thereby over a five-year window, costing the exact same amount of money.
1: Right, over the five-year waiver. Yeah.
0: Quite for, over the five-year over the five-year period. Right. Now, of course, part of the challenge was you start doing those. You know, Arizona did one, did theirs in 1982.
1: Yeah. And they, so they've just right. been doing
0: extensions of that for 40 years. Uh, at some point, there's like a okay, well, you know, are you really innovating anything or is this do you know this works and can't we just keep going but i I would say that you know some of the calculations historically around is this quote-unquote budget neutral are a little bit of a fiction and it's like a state a state can say well if we didn't do this you know fill in the blank whatever this is an expansion or a reform or a managed care push whatever we project that costs would increase at X percent over the next five years. Now, that's probably a very reasonable estimate, but, how you know, it's hard to predict what's going to happen next month in healthcare. Right, right, right. Right. The, right, so, the,
1: like, the problem think, is there, there's no counterfactual. So it's, in some ways, it's a guess, right? I appreciate right, that.
0: Right, it's a, it's a guess, and so I think getting away with that fiction, I think, just gets real about saying, well, let's just, let's just do this. Um but I, th- I think that, um, you know, there are certainly a lot of states, you know, w- one of the things that a lot of states would argue, you know, states with big, long-standing 1115 waivers, like in Arizona, like a Tennessee, um, like so many others is that, you know, what, what they'll argue is, look, we've been doing this for so long and we have been constraining costs for so long. We have become really, really efficient, cost-effective compared to other states, and yet because we have a history of, you know, you know, tightening the the, uh, the the screws on costs and trying to get more effective and efficient, they get penalized because you know you save a lot of money one year. Well, that's your new baseline, and it's like, oof, don't we get any credit? So there's an argument to be made by saying, look, we should allow some of these states to get credit for historical work to bend that cost. So I think that's another interesting angle that we'll see play out here. And that will very much be a, a very complicated, very delicate state versus uh, federal
1: government conversation. <laughs> okay. Okay. I was going to ask you, my last question I have noted here, I was going to ask you, and this is the politics and that is what you know. You can guess where I'm going, and that's the pay-for's. So the um, the resolution uh, that passed uh, yesterday calls for a trillion dollars in healthcare spending. This would have to be offset, of course. The larger, presumed pay-for is, is some dialing of drug price negotiation, and that that could get you easily. Uh, four to five hundred billion over the ten year budget window. But I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna pass on to ask you that question, Matt. <laughs> and I'm gonna ask you on two big issues because I'd I'd feel remiss. One is you say eighty five million, but even at eighty five million, of course that's to the sense artificial because um there's been a bump in um cost sharing uh and of course since March of twenty there's no one's being disenrolled in the Medicaid program during the PH public health emergency. So the question yeah. is, um what what would you like to see relative to a, assuring or increasing Medicaid enrollment to the extent that more people who let's just say pre-COVID, more people under the pre-COVID circumstances would uh enroll. Um again, guesstimates are maybe 20% of people who would qualify uh or rather 20% more of people could be added to the Medicaid rolls, uh, but that number does not uh, participate. The other is, and this, again, the, the other classic uh, Medicaid question is uh, Medicaid rates. Uh, part of the problem relative to uh, enrollment is we know, particularly, say, for example, behavioral and mental health services, a lot of professions uh, in that realm do not participate in the Medicaid program. And, they, of course, the more noted one is, of course, oral health. You'll remember the Diamante Driver disaster, I think it was in 07. Um, uh, but on those two questions, uh, ensuring uh, maximum enrollment and payment rates, what's what's your uh, response?
0: Ah, uh, that's, that's a big question. So yeah, those think, are
1: big questions.
0: Yeah, so tackling the enrollment piece first. So it is going to be a huge focus for us and our partners, the federal government and everybody else over the next six months or so to figure out how are we going to right size enrollment in the program so as as you alluded to because of legislation passed in the public health emergency not a single person has been disenrolled from right. medicaid for essentially the past two years. so the 85 million number that we'll have by the end of this year is inflated and if you were to look at all those people today a good chunk of them are going to be technically no longer eligible. But so the question is going to be, and we, 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 maybe this is a bad term of art. We call this the unwinding, the unwinding Mm -hmm. of the public health emergency, which is going to have so many other ripple effects. And it's going to present a, there's um, it's going to present a really important trade-off as we think about the, the policy goals of what we're trying to do, where, You know, the minute that the public health emergency is over and, you know, it 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 comes time to redetermine eligibility for a large number of people, there's going to be simultaneously these two competing priorities, one of which is to say, you know, wow, a lot of these people are not eligible, have not been eligible for a long time, and we are spending an enormous amount of state and federal taxpayer dollars on them that could be better spent on people who actually are out. And so let's right size this really quick. That's kind of the program integrity um, angle. The other angle is much more sort of a humanitarian right. public policy, good kind of argument, which is, well, a, what are you supposed to do? Like do this Thanos snap and like 20 million people lose coverage overnight you know, I can't imagine how disruptive that would be, you know, even if the, you know, the transition from Medicaid into maybe exchange subsidized coverage is is relatively seamless. You're still transferring to a completely different health plan with completely different rules, with different doctors, with different coverage, be- covered benefits, and now cost sharing up and up and down the, uh, the dial. Um, and then there's going to be a bunch of people who will not be eligible for anything or will not be able to afford what they're now eligible for. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's, there's a huge dynamic there of saying, no, no, we have to take this slowly and do this right. And, you know, some of it is just, you know, just real simple logistics of, you know, people in this country move around. Low-income individuals move around, um, and when you rely on things like, you know, sending out paper, you know, snail mail notices to say, hey, your Medicaid coverage is, is coming up, and we're going to need you to come in, or we're going to need you to contact us, or we're going to need you to, to update your information, you know, if, you, if the address isn't correct, or if, you know, and I'm certainly guilty of not reading every piece of mail that comes across my desk... Um, If you miss out on that stuff, you're, you have a huge vulnerability in in a humanitarian sense. So trying to figure out what is the balance between those two is enormously important. And, you know, we've known this eventuality has been coming. We knew this would, this leads to a point where you're going to have to do this. And so states have been building plans for a redetermination policy. Based on the guidance that we've had since last November, which happened to be Trump administration guidance. Now we know that the, the Biden administration is updating guidance, and they are probably going to significantly change that, um, which is completely fine, completely their prerogative. Um, but we're going to have to figure out, like, as we've been, you know, building this airplane as it's going down the runway. Now, all of a sudden, well, we have to take off from a different terminal. How do we pivot and do that in a timely fashion? So that's, you know, that's, we're going to spend a lot of time working collaboratively with um, with, with our, our, our federal partners to make sure that that all works. And then I think, so that was a long, that was a long answer. You know, your other point, though, was kind of this dynamic between Medicaid enrollment and reimbursement rates. Right. And I mean, this is this this is a challenge that has confronted Medicaid for a long, long, long time. time. Right. And, you know, it was created as an afterthought to Medicare in 1965. It is now bigger than Medicare in terms of total number of people served and total dollars spent. Um, Medicaid could afford to, you know, pay, you know, healthcare safety net prices when it was a small safety net program.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But as it grows and as, you know, as we edge up north of 85, one in four Americans, um, it becomes increasingly difficult to sustain um, just the provision of care uh, at those rates. And so ironically, and, you know, we saw this a little bit in um, uh, with the Medicaid expansion back in in 2014 as part of the ACA, um, you know. When you, when you expand Medicaid coverage, you generally have to increase rates as well to, to, to make up for the fact that any given provider's book of business is now going to be larger, In Medicaid, a larger right? share of Medicaid. And, you know, we, we've been doing this kind of piecemeal, it's little bits, it's a, two steps forward, one step back for decades. Um, and it's been slow enough that you know, it's it's like that you put the frog in the in the water and kind of slowly turn up. The heat. Right, right. Right. We've never really hit that boiling point moment of, oh, my God, the whole system's now broken. Um, but I think there's a very, very real question um, that is probably the subject of a completely se- separate podcast, which is how big can or should Medicaid grow? Because right now, Medicaid is, like I said, one in four Americans. It is, cover- we are covering 40% of all kids. We pay for 50% of the births. We are the nation's long-term care system. And despite your point around behavioral health provider access, Medicaid is the largest provider of behavioral health in the country. Mm-hmm. That is an extremely massive footprint in the healthcare system. And I would argue, one, that the program is not designed to be. and that, like we said, at the front end around, we got to think about bringing other people to the table, whether that's just basic provision of long-term care services, or as we said in the middle, when we're thinking about some of those social drivers of health services, but again, basic coverage, um, and this kind of leads into some of the stuff they're talking about in Medicare. Why doesn't Medicare have a long-term care benefit? Why doesn't Medicare cover vision or dental um you know why why has medicare been kind of so behind the ball on mental health parity i don't know why it's not and it's a problem and so you've got to think about how how are we you know maybe maybe the phrase is how do we make medicaid less necessary in the overall healthcare system it will always be critical it will always be so important for the sickest, the frailest, the most complex, the lowest income. But we've got to find ways to make other parts of the healthcare system that are not the safety net play a bigger role. Here.
1: You know, excellent, excellent point. You know, the phrase, and you're seeing literature on this as we come to this Medicaid so-called cliff, and that is is success killing the Medicaid program, right? <laughs> right. I mean, you have, again, the 80 plus, 80 to 100 million the underlying problem, of course, uh, you know, Medicaid is essentially a poverty program. So the the, right. the best solution for the Medicaid program is, you know, uh, have fewer poor people. Uh, with that, uh, however, uh, editorial, uh, Matt, thank you for <laughs> your, thank you for your time. As always, you bring a lot of insight and energy to this issue. Uh, so it's a pleasure to uh, discuss it with you. So best of luck the next four months. Genuinely, we're gonna need it. <laughs> Thanks, David.
0: You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David and Tricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.